What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. And we're back, finally, after like a two or maybe even three-week hiatus. I'm going to call it a sabbatical. A sabbatical does sound more official and mm-hmm. academic. So and You say I'm here as always, but I did miss the last one with Brian, sadly. That is a very good point. Yeah. I didn't want to... Hey, listen, I, was, I didn't want to call you out again. I'm trying to be a team I've player. Got, I preempt it before you can. Right. Ah, yeah. I see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Make fun of yourself for the bu- this, this bully can <laughs> exactly. type situation. <laughs> we're also joined by my new buddy... Roshana, who's hey. a who's a fourth year pharmacy student at MUSC, stuck with me on rotation all month. So of course, she had to come on the podcast and check it out. And she has to be by herself this month instead of the normal two. Right, Roshana, how's it going? Oh, it's going well so far. Yeah, you, like obviously this is your best rotation of all time. But <laughs> what other rotations have you had that are like second to this one? <laughs> so so far, I've done an acute care rotation. So far, I've done an acute care rotation, and then I've done an ambulatory care rotation, mostly dealing with anticoagulation and some diabetes patients. Very nice. cool. Um, and so you're at MUSC, South Carolina. What did you do undergrad? I started my undergrad at Claflin University in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Okay. Very cool. Um, what did you study there? I did a degree in biochemistry. Mm. Good old biochemistry. So you're smart. That's what you're telling us. Rajan, I'm going to let you in a secret, and that's that you and I both have biochemistry degrees, whereas the uh, other person in the room, he was like, you know what? I'm not doing this undergrad thing. I'm going right to grad school. <laughs> Zero degrees, except for the, you know, pharmacy one. <laughs> I had friends who uh, who were biochem majors, and they just skated through first year. I did not like first year, because I had never seen biochemistry at all, so. And I'm sure it was, like, just entry level to you. You weren't in love with all those structures? I was not in love with all the structures. Here's the thing that's about... A negative. If you're going to be a biochem major and undergrad, it's you have to decide that, listen, while everyone else is having a lot of fun, I'm going to just hate my life for four years. And then you just that's what you do. Or you could be like me and not have a major at all and just have a pre-pharmacy wow. interest. That is a good pre-pharmacy interest. That's what it was. I'm <laughs> extremely interested. No major. It was not official. That's funny. No, that's the way to do it, though, because then you're thinking 20 years old when you got out of school and worked out making bank yeah turns out it's okay yeah it turns <laughs> out i don't need a baccalaureate is that what they call it something like that something like that so Rashana, what uh if for the listeners at home you um you i sense a slight accent is that southern accent like you grew up in charleston <laughs> no i am actually from the parish of st thomas and the island of jamaica so i'm born jamaican nice very cool very cool that's kind of as nice as like orangeburg right yeah. Like not like the same beaches and such. Yeah, let's just say on my way to school, I'm driving along the coastline every single day, seeing crystal clear blue water. So, so not Charleston water. No. <laughs> when you first saw like the the great waters of Folly Beach, <laughs> were you horrified? Like, what have they done? I'm not horrified. I'm like, what is going on here? Why Why is black the water, water pitch black? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, definitely don't have Caribbean uh, style water here. No, I remember the first time I saw crystal clear water. I was like, I just looked at it. I was like, we can just go in there. Yeah, (laughs) looks like a bath water. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. That's cool. So you're doing the PharmD program. What's the plans after school? So the plan after school is to do MCare or specialty pharmacy or maybe some inpatient pharmacy. I haven't narrowed it down to a particular field yet. 
Nice. You, you're liking Amcare a lot so far, right? Yeah, so far I'm liking Amcare. I get to talk with the patients and see where they are and then just work with them to get them to where they want to be. Which, of course, you have to say that because you're on Mike's rotation. We'll ask you in a couple of weeks and see what happens. September 1st, we'll email you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you feel like, uh, is there any particular like disease states that you really enjoy, like diabetes or hypertension or anything like that, anti-coag that you've done? Uh, or yeah. you like a little bit of everything? I like doing anti-coag and I'm, learn- I'm liking learning about diabetes so far. It's cool. Mike's the diabetes guru. That's what I've heard, so that's why I came here. <laughs> so, <laughs> something like that. Something like that. Don't disrespect uh, the real gurus right. by calling me that. Um, no, that's really cool. So, I appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast and hanging out with us today. So, um, today, we are going to go through something that we talked about last year, and uh, we're going to kind of just redo it again, because, you know, why not? We're going to toss a little different spin on it. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> we, or could we do the exact same thing? We're gonna, we, I actually have this transcript we from have this last transcript. year, and we're going to read it verbatim. That, we'll see if anybody knows this. <laughs> so we're going to talk about asthma today. Um, and obviously the guidelines changed last year. And so we went through the new guidelines when they changed, but we're going to kind of go back through them. And we're also going to kind of talk through some of like the biologics and stuff as well. Cause I don't really think we talked on those too much on the last, I, I think we, we probably mentioned them, but this time we're going to kind of talk through those a little bit more where their places in therapy and, uh, yeah, kind of give you some of those basics as well. So I guess, uh, start with just some real basic Pathophys? Yeah, we can breeze through some of the pathophys and a little bit of the diagnostic criteria before getting into the treatment, referencing the new guidelines that we talked about and then talking about the biologics. Um, so asthma, of course, affects the bronchi and the lungs. Um, patients have a predisposition to chronic airway inflammation, uh, which is important to treatment and bronchoconstriction. Uh, they're going to have expiratory airflow limitations. Um, what you think of with asthma is wheezing, breathlessness, chest tightening, um, potentially coughing, and they're going to intensify um, and potentially vary over time, um, lower intensity, higher intensity. Uh, sometimes they can have symptoms at night or when they're waking, and that's important for um, initiating or continuing treatment as well. They can be triggered by exercise, um, obviously allergens, cold air even, and laughter, and um, they can worsen or occur uh, when you have a viral infection. Yep. Um, so the big, the big thing with the pathophysiology to remember, because I know for me when I was a student, like it was hard for me to kind of differentiate between COPD and asthma. And, you know, when you're first learning the inhalers and which inhaler goes where, one of the things that I kind of always think about now is inflammation, like think inflammation when you think asthma. So whereas like COPD, you have these like noxious particles or whatever has caused your cilia to be sort of like paralyzed and not doing their thing. Um, you still have those like globulate cells that are making that mucus production to try to get that junk out of the lungs. Well, now the cilia can't actually get it out anymore. So CPD actually, when you think of obstruction, you're actually getting like that, that mucus kind of stuck in the lungs and it's um, obstructing the airway and it just gets worse and worse with asthma. There's is more of just a straight inflammation. So there's multiple ways that can obviously lead to the inflammation and it does increase like the smooth muscle mass and all that of the brachii. But, um, 
thinking, you know, eosinophils play a factor and there's, there's other, uh, the globular cell hyperplasia, things like that. They all still do run a, um, play a role, but the inflammation is the big component, which is why we are always thinking like first line steroids mm-hmm. versus like in COPD, we kind of think the exact opposite and we save those for rare circumstances. Um, so after other things have been kind of treated. So that's the way I always like right off the bat, kind of keep it straight. I think of just an overall inflammation issue with asthma. And that's what we're trying to stop is that inflammation from getting worse or occurring in the first place. It is funny that in all the years of using Saba's um, first line PRN that they never really, that never clicked that maybe we do need to decrease the inflammation to have long lasting benefit from the asthma treatment. Right. But I guess they're like, well, they're not wheezing anymore. So did our job, huh? And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen the new guidelines, that's a big bowl of foreshadowing. Did I spoil it? Well, (laughs) Yeah. We'll get to it. <laughs> but you should have heard about the by now, right? Yeah. It's, it's been it, enough it's, time. It's 2020. It's time to read some books now. Have you had anything to do with quarantine other than read medical things? That's all you've had to do, sit around and read medical things. So Right. Well, actually, most people listening are medical professionals, so actually they've all probably been at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys didn't get to quarantine. Yeah. Quarantine seemed I. real fun. It did. I Like my hearing people complain. Yeah. I won't talk about it. Never yeah. Mind. I was like, yeah, is it, are you bored? <laughs> yeah. I'd like a day off. That'd be nice. That would be cool. But we're essential. So essential. Yeah. The, uh, so some environmental factors that can kind of trigger this, um, Cole already touched on some of them, but you know, allergens play a big role. So grass, dust mites, animal dander, things like that. Um, tobacco smoke, even secondhand smoke becomes an issue. So, you know, parents smoking in the house can worsen their children's asthma, things like that. Um, occupational exposures can, can cause problems, stress, exercise, certain medications, even like NSAIDs can potentially worsen asthma, um, like pulsed viruses, um, and other comorbid conditions. So like allergic rhinitis, uh, GERD, obesity, obstructive sleep apnea, those are all kind of things that can worsen the symptoms of asthma and make it harder to kind of keep it under control. So it is important to kind of figure out maybe some of the underlying causes or at least things that are making the condition worse to hopefully we can treat those and then the asthma will get better. There's, you know, patients that they may lose weight uh, at some point and then their asthma symptoms seem to go away just from the weight loss, you know, that that obesity situation was what was kind of driving it. So definitely uh, lifestyle changes are important and especially if we can pinpoint what's causing it. Right. So yeah, the, the avoidance factors for sure. As pharmacists, we don't really have to do too much um, as far as figuring out whether it's asthma or not asthma. Usually when they come to us, they have a diagnosis and we treat it, fortunately. Um, but not all of our listeners are pharmacists. So um, we mentioned some of the characteristic signs of um, when you would think it is asthma. We said wheezing, shortness of breath, um, can be worse at night or in the morning. Patients, especially adult patients with asthma, are going to have more than one type of symptom. Um, and we talked about the triggers. If it's not asthma, uh, you might see more of an isolated cough and no other respiratory symptoms associated. Uh, chronic production of sputum would not necessarily mean asthma. Uh, if their shortness of breath is associated with other things like dizziness, lightheadedness, uh, paresthesias, might not be asthma. Um, chest pain associated or exercise-induced um, trouble breathing with like a noisy inspiration might not be asthma for sure. Yeah. And so we won't go too much into the diagnosis 
portion. But as as far as you know, understanding that they use spermetry um, as well. Sometimes they'll use uh, like um, peak flow as well, so peak expiratory flow rates um, to kind of look at asthma uh, and, and diagnose asthma as well. Um, some of the terms that you may see from spermetry is things like your uh, forced expiratory volume in one second, or they call it FEV one. Um, that's usually what they end up going with when, um, when it comes to looking at patient's lung function and all that when di- making a diagnosis. Um, but that's basically the the amount of air that can be forcibly exhaled in one second. So pretty straightforward. Um, and there's also... OFEV1. Oh, yeah. I gotcha. I you, what did I say? No, I'm kidding. Listen, Cole. Okay, I'm, in, I'm in the zone right now, so if you could just not make jokes. <laughs> Rashawn, you see what he's doing? He's interu- see, unbelievable. See, see unbelievable. We're, not, we're not allowed to joke around around here. Right. We this stay very serious the whole time. The whole time. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to relay information. It's true. It's to stay serious. In fact, everybody, when we do get off on these tangents, everybody complains that they lose their <laughs> train of thought. So sorry about that. Well, nobody's forcing you to download our podcast. Hey, don't be mean to our listeners. I shouldn't discourage listeners. <laughs> yeah. Stop listening to our podcast. <laughs> Don't listen to call. He's he's out of his I don't mind. know what I'm talking about. It's been like three weeks since I've been here. It's so. a long day. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you may see is the FVC, um, which is the maximum volume of air that's exhaled after taking a deep breath in. And then also they'll use like the FEV1 over FVC. Um, you'll see those same numbers that uh, in like COPD as well, kind of when you're trying to figure out which grade they would fall in using the gold standards for COPD. So we won't go too much into spermetry, but that's uh, those are some terms that you definitely will run into at some point or another. Yep. All right. Um, so we, we're really going to talk about um, interpreting those for the most part. Yeah, we can touch on that. Okay. Well, if you have a low FEV1, um, so a percent predicted low FEV1, might identify a patient at risk of asthma, of course, um, independent of their uh, symptom severity. So especially if the FEV1 is less than 60% predicted, that's um, a significant indicator. Um, And that they're at risk for exacerbations. Exactly. Even if they seem fine. Yeah. Um, A normal to high FEV1 would be um, a patient with frequent respiratory symptoms um, or in a patient with frequent respiratory symptoms, especially um, if these symptoms are happening at night or um, something that might uh, classify them as being more severe would prompt consideration of an alternative cause for the symptoms like cardiac disease, uh, cough due to a post-nasal drip or like GERD or something like that. Yeah. So we did, we did talk about peak flow meters and I think where these can really come into play and be very useful is like for at home use. So patient has a peak flow meter, they have like their personal best and to see where, how far up, when, if you haven't seen one before, uh, it looks like this, like a, what do you call this? It's like a kazoo kind of thing, like a big yeah. broad kazoo. It is a kazoo. Isn't that, that's what it's called, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, boom. And uh, it has, when you blow forcefully into it, it'll send the, the little uh, indicator, you know, to a certain level showing how much, um, you know, how, how forceful you can blow. So you have your personal best. It's kind of like your baseline. And then if you are doing well, you're not having any problems, 80 to 100% of your personal best means that your asthma is under good control. Um, yellow zone is like kind of like the warning, you know, the caution, which means it's 50 to 80% of your personal best. That means that you know, definitely would want to have your inhaler close by and kind of monitor your symptoms to see if like what's going on, why you're having a harder time breathing. And then if you go less than 50% of the personal best, that's where, you know, you really want to start activating the 
action plan, so to speak, which that can be that's set up ahead of time between the provider and the patient. You know, it may be that they have a prescription for some oral steroid that they take if they're having an exacerbation and, you know, certain plan if they get to a certain spot they'll go to the hospital at this point or right. the uh, emergency department so you know it's just a way of kind of keeping track other than just obviously the person being able to tell how well or not well they can breathe so uh, peak flow meters is definitely uh, good to have around and use that and even with that it's hard to assess the true severity of the asthma right. until you've actually started treating it and you see um, how long it took them to become under control, basically. Yeah. So it's kind of assessed retrospectively after you've reached control of the symptoms, um, usually several months after. They classify them. Um, there's mild, moderate, and severe, and that's based on what step in treatment you got to, which we'll go through that algorithm when we're talking about the updated guidelines. Um, but if it's controlled with step one or two, that's mild. Step three is moderate, and step four to five would be severe asthma. Yeah. And there's other like grading scales too, where they talk about like persistent asthma and things. Um, the GINA guidelines break it down as simply as mild, moderate, and severe. I like so simple. I do. The, I like simple as well. So yeah, there's also things like, um, looking like you can do some questionnaires to kind of look through and see how well the asthma is controlled. So like they have like the asthma control questionnaire or the ACQ, um, they have asthma control test, so it's another ACT. Um, and so with the, those are another way to kind of like you have a baseline and then it, you can monitor how the score changes or improves and see how well the patient's controlled after you've changed treatment. So lots of different ways to kind of manage the, you know, and, and document how well the patient's doing. Right. So um, kind of talking about the actual treatment part of it. So for those of you who remember, you know, the before 2019 and st probably still done in a lot of clinics, patient's rescue inhaler was always the albuterol or levobuterol inhalers. Right. So patients, I mean, it's been like that for, I mean, 30 years, 40 years, something like that. I don't have the dates in front of me, so I'm guessing a long time. And uh, then we always kind of, I mean, I remember very vividly like in school being taught, hey, you know, this is your whatever Advair, let's say, yep. is your controller. And then yeah. this is your albuterol and your rescue inhaler. And you use this one every day, uh, you know, your Advair every single day, regardless of how you feel and the whole OSCE, you know, thing that you mm -hmm. go through in like counseling. So when the 2019 happened and uh, the guidelines completely changed, everybody was kind of like, what are we doing here? Right. Because for the longest time, you were told that you should never use a controller medication as needed. That yep. was like a massive no-no. Mm -hmm. It was a violation to the Saba. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, we would get major points marked off an OSCE if we didn't <laughs> specify that you know that was a that was a thing. Yeah. So the the big change is you know it starts at step one. So the preferred reliever at this point is an ICS for motorol combination as opposed to albuterol. Yeah. So the reasoning for that, and it, that, so when this first happened, I know a lot of the questions that started coming up was, okay, well, why one, why is it just for motorol? So like Advair had just gone generic mm -hmm. when that happened. And I remember even you and I talked about like, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe we can use Al um, Advair now since it's cheaper. Right. And then that they are very specific about it being ICS and for Motorola. They don't specify any other lava that can be used. And so the reason kind of for that, just from a straight 
kinetic standpoint is fermoterol has almost the same onset of action as albuterol. Mm-hmm. So whereas albuterol takes about three to five minutes to kind of kick in, um, fermoterol is right around there right. too. Up, up to seven-ish, but yeah. If you think about Advair, Advair, for instance, selmeterol that's in, that's in Advair, it takes about 30 minutes plus to actually activate. So while fermoterol is a considered a LABA because of how long it stays in the system, it is has the onset of action as a SABA. Right. So that's why they specifically, plus obviously. It's like a rapid-acting LABA. Yeah, rapid-acting LABA. So that would be RALABA. Yeah, we just came up with something. Yep, you I heard did. it here first. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why that particular, obviously plus the uh, studies that were done leading up to this were based around for Motorol. Yeah. So that's the reason why these are specifically mentioned from ICS for Motorol and not just ICS LABA in general. So that's one part of it. And one of the kind of the big changes for, with step one, so just first step of mild asthma would be instead of using any kind of like set controller mm-hmm. or, you know, ICS by itself, they, their preferred option is to use just an as needed um, low-dose ICS or promoter or like Simbacort's the one you see most commonly right. used. I think um, Dolera is the other one that has Formoterol in it. That's Formoterol. But um, Simbacort is the, I know that's the one we use in my clinic, but um, that being used as needed. So still kind of basically a controller and a reliever all built into one. Yeah. And still somewhat expensive. So it does mention that um, if that's not attainable, you can use the Saba, but they recommend using an ICS whenever the Saba needs to be taken. So you're still getting action on that inflammation as opposed to just having the Saba by itself. Yeah. And some of the studies, like if you're interested, we won't go through them in detail or anything, but like Sigma trials, there's the thing Sigma 1, Sigma 2, um, they, Sigma 1 in particular um, was using um, budesonide for motorol versus um, terbutaline because I think this was done overseas. So they that's like one of their sabas and uh, it was superior. And when it comes to like exacerbations and um, things like that, and it was something that, uh, you know, was kind of surprising because, again, like we were always told if you give a lava kind of as needed, you could potentially um, really increase the risk to the patient. Right. I think there was a black box warning. Yeah. And so which they've removed since, right? So the combination, so it used to be anything that had a LABA in it, whether it was the combos or the LABAs by themselves, which we almost never see nowadays, all had a black, black box warning for an increase in asthma related death, mm-hmm. which is weird on a medication that's supposed to help for asthma. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this study called the SMART trial that was put out. It had like 26,000 plus patients in it where they did selmeterol versus placebo and um, it increased the chance of death from asthma. And so because of that, they threw on that black box warning to anything that had a LABA in it, thinking that it was the LABA that caused it regardless. And so um, then later on, fast forward like several years later, they did a couple different studies. They did the Vestry and the Austri study. Um, Vestry was kids 4 to 11 using Advair versus fluticasone by itself. And then um, Austri was similar, but it was 12 and up. And uh, both of them really didn't see a difference in adver- adverse asthma-related events. So the whole risk of death wasn't really there. And so when they kind of started looking at the mechanism, it looks like 
you know, because because the the theory before was that the long term beta ag- uh, agonist activity, like the LABAs, especially used o- or overused, um, would downregulate those beta receptors. So that if the patient had an exacerbation, mm-hmm. then you go to give them like nebulized albuterol, and it wouldn't do anything. Right. So that was the big kind of the the mechanism, the theory that was out there. Well, then they did another study where uh, they were looking at kind of like the you know, physiology behind this. And it looked like corticosteroids, when you give those, those actually upregulate beta receptors. And then they also showed that um, LABAs um, can activate corticosteroid receptors. So then in that case, you're going to basically enhance the transcription of anti-inflammatory mediators. And so there's almost like this synergistic effect between ICS and LABAs when you put them together. So the combination products, they took that black box warning off. Mm. Now, so a lava by itself. Lava by itself, it's still on there. Still on there. So like uh, Cerevent, so Metarol yeah. by itself. And there's a couple. I don't. I mean, I like. I can't remember the last time right. I saw lava by itself. Cerevent's probably the last one I saw. But those still have that black box warning. So you only would use those in COPD if you're going to use them by themselves. Right. But as long as you are giving them with an ICS, it's all good. Which is also why the Llama, I like llama lava combos we use in COPD. You would not want to start in those patients and like off label and asthma without giving an ICS because right. then you could cause a problem. Right. So yeah, that's one of the big things, and and that's I think been ingrained in so many people's minds that it's hard to <laughs> break that habit of like, okay, for the last however many years we've been told that you never use right. a lava as needed and now we're like it's actually way better than albuterol and not only that i mean the albuterol inhalers still give what seems to be benefit right they give mm-hmm. a very immediate benefit you can see a market change and so people are going to be like well i mean you know th- this might be kind of hard to get it might be expensive form i know this albuterol works i'm just going to use it just turns out that it doesn't work as well and and it's if you think about it from like a physiology standpoint, it makes sense yeah. because the ICS is there as an anti-inflammatory, right. which is what's causing the problem. In the Seems first like place. the most important thing. It just it doesn't act fast enough, so that's why they wouldn't have used it. PRN, right? And then they're like, wait a second, for Motorol though. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely interesting. And you saw that in the studies that compared the two, you see that when you look at as needed like Simbacort use, then you actually decrease the amount of steroid that's required overall yeah. because then the patient's not actually get, it's getting enough steroid to kind of suppress that inflammation and they don't end up needing, in some cases, don't need to go on to like everyday steroid use. And if I remember correctly, in the some of the trials, um, they did look at using the ICS when you're using the Saba compared to Saba by itself or, or compared to the ICS Lava and the ICS Lava beat it out still works just doesn't work as well so that's why they weren't like let's just add on a you know prn ics when they use the sapa yeah because you still, still get that better. you still need that bronchodilation in the short term right. to be able to catch a breath right so who's that, it astrazeneca are they the makers of simbacort i'd have to Could double check wrong. i don't even if know so you know they're, they're doing pretty well based on this guideline yeah they really hit a home run with yeah. that one so that's definitely the the uh, the biggest change and as we walk through, we'll talk about a couple confusing parts of that, but that's kind of step one. If we're just walking up that stepwise pattern of the uh, treatment algorithm, the first one is going to be you're using the same inhaler as needed as your rescue and as your controller. Right. Step two. Yeah, it gets a little confusing, right? A little bit. So the options are daily low-dose ICS, 
or PRN low dose ICS for Motorol. Um, so I guess the confusion comes when you start using a controller medication. Are you still using the PRN ICS for Motorol as opposed to Asaba, right? Yeah. One way to think about it is you don't start scheduling your ICS lava until you reach step three. Okay. So in step two, you're still not scheduling the ICS, ICS for Motorola. Yeah. So you can basically, you basically can just carry on the way you were in step one. So it basically is just a continuation of step one is, is an option. Or you can use a scheduled low dose ICS by itself, mm-hmm. but the preferred reliever at that point is still going to be like the ICS for Motorola as needed, but you're taking the inhaler, the, the controller every day that's the ICS by itself. So you can still do a daily ICS and an as-needed ICS for Motorola. As far as I know. Which I would think wouldn't be just the most ideal because then you're getting extra steroid where the whole kind of p- part of the point is to decrease steroid use, you know. But yeah, per, per the guideline, that is what it says. And um, I think... The thought process is because they put such an emphasis on de-escalation, yeah. which we'll talk about, but right. I think that's part of it is trying to get you to go back to like using just the simple core as needed and getting Instead off of the Instead of having to do it every day. three or four months. So, I see. yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's it's a fluid process. So you can, it, it is a, literally stair steps. You can walk up them and then they want you to walk back down them. You're not staying where you are. Whereas, you know, New York Heart Association heart failure treatment it's hard to come back down from once you go back, you know, go up on a severity scale. Well, and that's the big difference between that and COPD, right? To, right. Besides, I mean, um, there's multiple differences, but one of them is that asthma is almost like reversible in a way, yeah. whereas COPD, you can slow it, right. but you're not getting your lung function completely back. Which is why they have the, the C in COPD, right? It's right. Chronic. That's exactly what it stands for. <laughs> so Just like FEV1. One right. second. One second. So the... Uh, I guess when you get to step three, that's where things kind of get a little weird. And I think, and then if you look at Gina actually put out a, like kind of a summary statement explaining what they meant, because if you look at the treatment options for step three, it says that their preferred option is low dose ICS LABA. And then the uh, preferred reliever is, still the Simbacort and then, or you can use albuterol as well as like a secondary, you know, preferred, like a second um, option. The confusing part is in that they clarified is they do not want the patient to be on two separate ICS LABA combos. So for example, they do not want the patient using Advair like as a controller. So using Advair twice daily or Brio once daily or whatever, and then using the Simbacort as needed with that. If you're going to use a different, scheduled ICS LABA, then you have to kind of go back to as needed Saba Saba yeah. or albuterol. Which they do in all these cases list as an other reliever option because if they can't obtain the ICS from Odorol, they can of course be used. So is that what the little asterisk is? Low dose ICS from Odorol is the reliever for patients prescribed budesonide from Odorol um, for maintenance and reliever therapy. So it's going to be the Simbacord once daily or whatever and as needed kind of thing. Yeah, so if you're doing Simbacort scheduled, like as the controller where you're scheduling it, you know, two puffs twice daily is the the max, and then you can use an extra puff as the reliever if you needed it, but if you switch up, they don't want you doing two different LAPAs. Yeah. And that's the confusing part that I was confused about myself too is I'm thinking, well, you can do Advair 
or Brio or something mm-hmm. like that, and then just do the Simbacore on top of it. They don't want that. Yeah, they don't want that. Man, I'm telling you, I'm about to look up who the drug company is because they just scored on Home that. Run. Right, because if you want to use the best reliever, you have to use this drug, which it's generic now too, but uh, Yeah, AstraZeneca is making bucks on this. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, one th- I mean, I, I know of our clinic in particular, again, like when I first started bringing this up, some of the people I remember the I remember like very vividly one of the nurse practitioner students looked at me like I was taking crazy pills when I said to use Simbacort as she's like um that's cool this pharmacy is crazy <laughs> and uh, we've had, but the people that have actually adopted this and actually started using this as an as needed thing um, one of the one of the people I remember very vividly one of the patients they had uh, they were you know low income patient and they couldn't afford two different inhalers and so they were going through their albuterol like crazy and. We ended up switching because they because you know, and I, I kind of like discounted the uh, I had some influence over the pricing at the time, and so like I discounted the Simbacord a little bit so that it was kind of like forced, like you know, I had kind of an extra incentive to uh, if you're paying cash to get the Simbacord instead of Albuterol, trying to force evidence based medicine, right? For people who are a little skeptical, <laughs> um, but I remember like we had this patient who could only afford one inhaler because yeah. we wanted to get her on a controller, couldn't afford it, so she's like, I'll just take the Albuterol again and just keep doing it because it's all I can afford. So we said, well, how about this one? It's a different one. You can take it just like you were doing the albuterol, but just try this. We gave her Simbacort because mm-hmm. our Simbacort's only like 25 bucks. It's a cash price. It's crazy. So mm-hmm. we're an FQHC. I so that's, if you're not familiar with it, that's why we have cheap prices. Um, we're not like in bed with GoodRx or anything like that. <laughs> but um, so we have 340B and all that. So we have ability to get prices pretty cheap on certain meds. But um, so we have, uh, we got her in Simbacort and like she, then her follow-up, she was like, oh, I, I'm, not even having to use it that often anymore. Like I feel way better. And so we were able to use that to kind of get her, even though she needed to probably be further along the algorithm, she could only afford to be a certain point and that still made a difference. So I guess exercise induced, they're still recommending ICS lava, right? Um, as far, I mean, I didn't see anything specific, yeah, but I, I mean, just going, going based on this, I don't see why they wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some of the pulmonologists right now screaming. Yeah, ah, idiots. But I did see it is AstraZeneca. Though since it's generic, they're probably kicking themselves like, man, we should have done these studies like 20 years ago, you know? Who knew? Made a bunch more money. So, yeah. the um, the, the uh, We've seen a big, like, improvement in our quality scores from an asthma standpoint with switching people over to as-needed Simbacort. It's great. So it's, it's been cool to see it play out because I know there was a lot of skeptical yeah. peeps whenever this first came out. Well, it's funny because sometimes, you know, evidence-based people are kind of ahead of guidelines and stuff, but I don't really see it coming, you know. I don't think many people really did. Yeah. Except for people who may be following the trials, of course. I was going to say, yeah. I'm sure, like, real I'm evidence-based sure Dr. people. Wart knew. Right. Real evidence-based people. I like yeah. how we just lumped ourselves into that group. <laughs> Here's the thing. When people at the, head, like the top of research like ourselves, <laughs> I can't believe we didn't see this coming. <laughs> people at the forefront of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> or to do that a random podcast. Right. Can't believe we didn't see this coming. Oh, We've, we, after all of our other predictions, <laughs> <laughs> the um, so the, you know if if you do switch it over though to like something like Advair Brio as the you know in step three where you're going to do that as a controller every single day, then make sure you switch the reliever inhaler back to albuterol so that they can they're not getting two lavas. That's the big. Yeah. Thing to take away from that. Man, so you could, I mean, there's all these other inhaler options, but you really have to get up into the higher steps before you ever really need to consider it, um, unless their formulary just doesn't allow it. Yeah. So interesting. All of them are just kind of bunk now for early asthma treatment. 
Yeah, I mean, and then once you do, if you do decide to use a different ICS lob, I mean, you got your Adver and your and your Brio. Because yeah. I mean, um, Dulera is still from Motorola, so you could technically thing. use that as needed as well. Right. Um, but yeah, so the and the big thing is looking at the intensity of the, the steroid component too. So we have, you know, the uh, low dose, medium dose, high dose. I see. So like Adver has three separate doses. I think Brio has two. If I remember correctly, um, up, up to date though, has like a good, like comparison study. So you can kind of see what they classify as low, medium and high dose. Um, cause I know I don't have that memorized. I don't know if you do, but <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely, definitely yeah, do it all the time. But, um, yeah, so that's something that you definitely have, uh, I think LexiComp has another version of, which I guess is part of up to date, but LexiComp yeah. has an abbreviated version too. So you can kind of look at that and make that distinction. But, um, Another thing that we didn't really mention too is an alternative to using like a steroid by itself. One recommendation is that you can do a leukotriene receptor antagonist like Montelukast mm-hmm. um, daily along with your rescue inhaler. Uh, mm. Yeah. I Maybe in kids, if like I know some people have like worried about giving kids steroid, which you're you're not getting yeah. much systemic absorption. So it's not like you're having to worry about like growth suppression and right. things like that. Um, yeah, there's not too much evidence for that. The I think they like to see this paired with like treating for something else. Right. Right. I always think a lot about it. Like with, if you have allergic rhinitis, then maybe, yeah. you know, you could use that for like as a comorbid thing, but even that, I'm yeah. not a big, Plus it doesn't new- work that well for allergic rhinitis. Doesn't so. look that well for that. I mean, there's the new black box warning mm. of, um, Suicidal ideations. Yes. Suicidal ideations. And that's new this year. Behavioral mood changes. Yeah, that's new. I did, it doesn't make a case for it, that's for sure. Yeah. Does, it doesn't increase your, uh, I guess, enjoyment in prescribing that, I would think, because, okay, oops. Yeah. person may uh, change their behavior so, based and on this. Really, the question is exactly what you said. Do you want to add this on or just step up their ICS lava therapy or whatever? Yeah. Um, one thing just to mention the black box warning, um, I did read from Montelukas is cause I have gotten a few questions about this for like kids that have been on it and are doing well, like, okay, do we need to stop them mm-hmm. from being on that? So one of the things to keep in mind is, and this is a statement I read from the FDA when they first put that black box warning on there was basically we've, they've known for a while that it could potentially cause some mood changes and things. It's hard. We to, were taught that. I yeah. Mean, like it, people were aware. And so it's, it's kind of hard to sort of, obviously say that this is the cause when we have things that, you know, like a child suicide or things like that, yeah. you know, something horrible like that. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what caused it versus other factors. Um, and so the way the FDA basically kind of worded it was like, they wanted to make it step up the warning because they want one providers to be aware of it. Cause the, a lot of, they said a lot of providers weren't even aware that that was a potential side effect. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to kind of draw attention to it. And then two, you know, if you have a patient that has a history of some sort of, you know, behavioral health issue or psychiatric yeah. disorder, obviously we would not probably want to stay away from them. If a patient otherwise though is healthy, you're not, you're, you're they're, they've been on it. Their behavior's never changed, obviously still monitoring them, but right. it's probably safe to continue if you want to. Yeah. Um, Awareness thing. So the yeah. parents are looking out for that kind of thing. Exactly. So that's what it kind of came down to yeah. is, is that. Um, I mean, the treatments for depression and suicidal ideation, also have that. also have that risk exactly of, right so what's the chicken with the egg you know i always get chicken with my eggs every time <laughs> two two in the hand is 
one. Two in the bushes. Yeah. yeah something exactly. like that. Right. We've messed that up every single time we've tried to use that expression. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> so um, ICS um, lava is, seems to be a better option if you do need to escalate um, or do an ICS daily. Um, you know, it seems to be a decent option as well. Um, leukotriene receptors, I'm not a huge fan of. So just some other quick options before we get into the biologics. Um, there's also the, there's llama uh, as an option as you're increasing step-up therapy. So teotropium, spiriva. Um, so it, it has some evidence being added to the standard combination therapy, but we obviously want to consider the ICS lava first. Um, there's also two separate respimat doses just to be aware of. Uh, there's the 1.25 micrograms. Um versus the which is two puffs once daily versus the cop dosing of 2.5 micrograms two puffs a day so that would be used in COPD. yeah they come as two two different color boxes too for the pharmacists out there a couple of blues one's like blue and one's like a greenish blue or something yeah um if i remember correctly <laughs> something uh, like that but they are both uh they're both respimat inhalers which helps but there is two different doses and teotropium is the only one that's been really studied in uh asthma that i've seen so from a mechanism standpoint, obviously, if we're blocking the uh, the musculonic receptors, then we can get some dilation from there. But you're also, I always kind of think about it too, from like an anticholinergic standpoint. You know, you're kind of drying up everything. So that's why in COPD it makes a lot more sense because you're drying up some of that mucus production from the globular cells and all right. that. Um, on the asthma side, you're really just kind of banking on the the bronchodilation aspect so it definitely can't help but it's definitely more of a third line option after you've kind of escalated the treatment in the dose of the ics or ics lava right and yeah kind of a, another option out there and once we talk through the biologics i'll kind of i'll i'll talk through my version of how i kind of differentiate between which way to go and like what i've kind of relayed to my pa students just as kind of like the basic way of, of thinking about it um, but we'll go through the biologics first. Yeah, well, tell us because um, I, I don't. I think when, especially when primary care providers think of asthma, they're not thinking that they're going to end up using a biologic. I have a feeling they're usually. I could be wrong, but I feel like they're probably referring out before they're prescribing these. Um, so yeah, let's hear. Let's see what are what is a good way to think about it where it might could actually be prescribed in a primary care setting before they're referred out. So. Basically, what I was getting what I was getting at is if they don't meet one of the, like the criteria for one of the three biologic classes that we're going to talk about, then teotropium would be would a be good option because yeah. um, you do like kind of like a phenotypic assessment of the patient once you get to stage, especially step five where it's like severe. You've you're doing high dose ICS lava, and then you're trying to figure out like what you're going to add on to that. It's definitely looking to see if they're a candidate for a biologic, and if not then teotropium is always kind of there hanging out. Right. Or if they couldn't afford a biologic, whatever the case may be. Right. So one of them is Zolaire. Um, it's a, all of these are going to be monoclonal antibodies. It inhibits IgE binding to uh, their receptors on mast cells and basophils. Uh, so that's primarily um, how it's going to work, which is obviously way different than the other options that you have to treat asthma. It is indicated for moderate to severe asthma. Um six years of age and older and they need um, a skin test to an allergen to be positive um, and symptom control with an ics is inadequate so that's when they would be indicated 
in, in when you're kind of thinking about treatment as well, and they say like if you look at the actual stepwise approach, it says um, refer for phenotypic assessment um, with potential add-on therapy. So basically, is is there a chance of having some sort of like type two inflammation? Situation. So, are the blood eosinophil count above 150? Um, is there sputum eosinophils? Uh, is the aller- is the asthma allergen driven? Um, is there a need for like, oral corticosteroids? So, there's a few different criteria. There's a breakdown that's like three pages long worth of an algorithm, um, and the decision tree algorithm that kind of breaks that all down. So, you check that out on the GENA guidelines. But if they do seem to be a candidate for a biologic, then you can kind of figure out which biologic to use from there. But the big thing with the Zolaire is the need for a positive skin prick test mm-hmm. to look for like a specific IgE antibody. Because um, they're going to need specific IgE levels um, between 30 and 700 is what they say. And that's and that's like what they base the dosing on and everything as well uh, is those IgE levels. The, uh, the other thing is there's a black box warning on Zolaire, so you want to give it. Uh, it's given subcutaneously, but it needs to be given in a healthcare setting under medical supervision because there's a risk of anaphylaxis. Yeah. So not what you want when you're trying to cure asthma is to <laughs> cause anaphylactic reaction. No. Um, and there does seem to be a slight increased risk for cardiovascular events, um, adverse events. And so we definitely want to make sure the patient is a true candidate before kind of going this route. Right. Um, the other option is if it's a eosinophilic phenotype asthma. So there, the class of medication is the interleukin-5 um, or interleukin-5 receptor antagonists. Uh, and there's a couple of them on the market, three of them on the market that I'm aware of. Uh, Nucala is the one that I've seen the most of probably. And then um, there's two others as well. But that's going to be for patients who have an elevated uh, eosinophil count. So specifically, if you have a patient who, um, one, has had an exacerbation in the last year and then also has a blood eosinophil count of 300 um, 300 eosinophils per microliter or more, then they would be a candidate for that. Um, If it's less than that, then you have to kind of reassess and decide whether you're going to do it off-label or something. But um, that's going to be kind of... uh, you know, like showing that they would be a good candidate. And then as far as whether or not they're going to have a good response, um, if their eosinophil count is even higher than that, or if they've had um, more exacerbations than just one, um, if it's adult onset asthma, or if they have the presence of nasal polyps, those are all kind of uh, factors that show that you may have a good response using one of those anti-interleukin-5 inhibitors. So, because those are not cheap. No. So um, we won't really go through the dosing of all those just because it's too specific. Lexicomp has all that different. If you're ever going to use it, you'd look at them. Yeah. Um, Not something you need to have in your back pocket all the time. Exactly. Um, And then the other one is our interleukin-4 inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So Dupixent, uh, which you may be like atopic dermatitis, right? Well... (laughs) Yes, but also used in uh, asthma. And there was a study called the Liberty Quest trial, um, and they did uh, they used this medication as add-on therapy um, to patients who had moderate to severe uncontrolled asthma. 
and uh, had a decrease in exacerbations. And they said the study showed that the patients who had the most benefit were the ones who needed maintenance oral corticosteroids. So patients who were like taking uh, like prednisone every day to keep the inflammation at bay. The, those were the ones that seemed to benefit the most from Dupixent. Um, so the other thing is you have patients who have to have had an exacerbation in the last year. They also have to have a blood eosinophil count of at least above uh, 150. And so, um, and then, or if they need maintenance or oral corticosteroids, they could also be a candidate. So the way I kind of think about this in my own non-pulmonology way <laughs> is if the patient is, uh, if you think there's an allergic component to it and you do a positive, you get a positive skin, uh, skin test, then probably going more of like the Zolaire route. If the patient doesn't have a positive allergy test, um, but their eosinophil count is 300 or more, then I'm thinking, and they've had an exacerbation and all that, then I'm thinking more of like the new collar or one of the other anti-interleukin fives. If those don't apply, but the patient has a need for oral corticosteroids or has had an exacerbation in eosinophil, eosinophil count above 150, then I'm thinking the anti-interleukin-4, the Dupixin. If none of those apply, obviously reassess everything that's going on, and then also teotropium is kind of where that falls into play. Right. So that's my simpli- probably way over simplistic way of looking at it, not being a pulmonologist, but that's kind of how I... Keep a track. Keep track of it in my own head. Yeah, Gina guidelines try to make things pretty simple, so it's good. Oh, so it's Gina's. Okay, that's yeah. cool. Give them all the credit. <laughs> as I'm reading, as I'm reading off you're, the slide, you're an extension of the Gina guideline, right? They they consult me a lot. Yeah. the The other thing too that we really didn't touch on was, and this is actually talked about a lot in COPD guidelines, the goal guidelines, but the actual device itself, making sure that the patient understands how to use the inhaler, whether mm-hmm. it's a respimat or a, an ellipta or just an old school HFA inhaler, uh, making sure the patient does understand the how to use it and making sure that they're capable of kind of using it correctly when they need it. So if they're not, you know, assessing, you know, whether or not that's the case, you know, they bring the inhaler to the appointment all of a sudden you see that uh, they're not using it correctly is definitely something to potentially look at or switch to a different type of inhaler so that it makes it easier for them and that may actually improve their symptoms without escalating treatment. I remember the only the one that I always think about is this this uh, patient, elderly patient was saying his uh, Spiriva didn't work. Mm-hmm. When he, he was his was COPD, swore his Spiriva didn't work, um, asked to see like him use it, takes the pill out of the blister pack, throws that back, pops it pops it in his mouth, yeah. swallows it, and he's like then he just breathes in the inhaler for some reason. <laughs> And I was like, oh, <laughs> you ate it. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, uh, no wonder your symptoms are not improving. It's classic. Yeah. So definitely, uh, let's get that guy to rest my mind. <laughs> so uh, definitely assessing the inhaler and whether it's a good fit for that patient is important. If it's a kid, making sure that they have uh, a neb- a, uh, either a nebulizer if they need that or at least a um, spacer. Yeah. And an inhaler that can use a spacer as opposed to, you know, dry powder. Right. Which double check because sometimes like QVAR switched their yeah. inhaler device and now it can't be used with the spacer. Right. Although people still prescribe it with the spacer. Yeah, because so, they're used to it. Right. Yeah. So keep up with the stuff and check. It. Don't don't be one of those people who just. I have always done it this way. Prescribe. Mm-hmm. Don't be like that. <laughs> if you do, don't tell me you listen to our podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of uh, the simplistic breakdown 
of the asthma treatment guidelines. Um, the other thing is the de-escalation. I guess we can touch on that real quick. Um, so the GINA guidelines do recommend stepping down treatment once the patient has good control of their asthma and it's been maintained for three months or more. Yeah. Then we start taking steps back down to see what the like lowest treatment option that still controls their daily symptoms as well as their exacerbations. And hopefully we can kind of keep them at a lower dose once the inflammation is kind of at bay. So you're documenting baseline status. Um, you give them like their asthma action plan. And then after three months of being stable, then like let's say they're on an ICS, decrease the dose by 25, 50% and do that every two to three month intervals. Hopefully we can get them all the way back down to like simple cord as needed. Yeah. And then they're good to go. But that's there that way. If, uh, you know, you can kind of, if you're at step five, hopefully you don't have to stay there. Maybe you do, but hopefully not. Right. Goal is to be on the lowest therapy possible. Right. So yeah. What else? Anything? That's all I got. Roshana, what I miss? No, I think you covered most of it. You sure? Yeah. Don't lie to me, Roshana. I think you got most of it right. Okay. <laughs> so it comes September when her grades are in, she's going to be like, he missed this. <laughs> so the thing is, Roshana, don't tell her this, but she's much smarter than I am. I can already tell. Mm. So, as yeah, I got to keep acting confident while I'm around her until she's not my student anymore. It's two biochem majors, of course. You know, Going head to head. So much knowledge I can see. It's like a, it's like electricity. It's going to go, it's going to explode. I love it. Roshana's gone, like, even this, today when we were seeing patients, I was like, you know, hey, you want to see this patient on my, on, and usually like when I ask that question, I think you want to go in the room by yourself, start the whole thing. Usually students are like, like, okay, I guess I'll try. I was like, yeah, duh. Yeah, I was born for this. Yeah, yeah. I love it. It's like, I don't even need you. That's hilarious. Rashawn, never lose that attitude. Okay. Com- confidence all day long. Don't be cocky like Cole, but <laughs> don't be like Cole. <laughs> don't be super cocky like Cole is, but be confident. I love it. All right. Um, I don't think we have anything else, so we'll wrap it up. Yeah, man. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that was helpful. If uh, you have any comments or anything like that that you want to add, definitely we want to hear them. And so make sure uh, you reach out to us over email or any of the other social media platforms, um, and one of us will get back to you as quick as we can. Uh, you can also text us if you want. Um, you can text us at the phone number 415-943-6116. And uh, we'll text you back as quick as we can. We're also uh, going to be working on a like one like a monthly newsletter type of thing. Um, where we have a pharmacy student a P4 named Kyle that's going to be he's out in Texas and he's actually going to be helping us with some like uh, infographics and things that he's made. He's very talented, and uh, so he's going to be helping us out. So we're going to put out our newsletter, and then we're also going to include one of his like infographics that has like stepwise treatment options for like hypertension and just quick like clinical pearl you know little one one pagers that you can kind of use i think are gonna be really helpful so he's uh asked if he can be involved and i I was super pumped when he reached out to us because he's very good so looking forward to that so reach out to us if you want to be on that you can go to our website that's kind of like half running for now until cole steps up his game and (laughs) finds out how to be a webmaster and uh you can subscribe on there if you want and we'll definitely add you to our list or send us a text and we'll add you to a list that way but um, definitely, uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that. Um, also, check out Patreon if you haven't already. We've been uploading lectures there. Um, basically, they're just my lectures for my PA students, but I upload the lecture um, and I'll upload the, the slide deck as well. So if you 
are tired of us joking around in the middle of a thought and you want more of a structured uh, <laughs> structured format in my actual lecture. I still joke around on there too, unfortunately, <laughs> but um, it's a little bit more structured than the podcast. And plus you get access to all the slides. So that's on Patreon. It's like $3 a month. Um, so check that out. And for all of you who have already like kind of signed up, much appreciated, greatly uh, appreciate the support. And um, also too, if you like the podcast, you know, subscribe, leave us a comment. We appreciate those too. And uh, we will get back to you next time. Sorry this outro is getting so long. We're working on it. (laughs) Thanks. Bye.